We just heard the account of Jesus' resurrection from Mark's gospel. And it starts in a rather redundant way. Three times in the first two sentences, Mark tells us the day and the time of day. If you have a Bible, look with me at Mark chapter 16. First, we're oriented toward a certain day. Verse 1 says, after the Sabbath. Then we're told about a time of day. At the beginning of verse 2, very early. Then we're told again about a certain day on the first day of the week. And then it's back to the time when the sun had risen. So there's this kind of seesawing back and forth between the day and the time. Now, when Mark repeats himself like this, he's not being a sloppy writer. He's being an intentional writer. And it's not just Mark. All four of Jesus' gospels do this peculiar thing with time in their account of the resurrection. All four gospels, um, all four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them have the same fascination with the day of the week and the time of day. So what's that all about? Why is this so important to the first Christians? Well, to see what's going on here, you need to be able to do a kind of double listening. You need to listen with one ear to the story Mark is telling us. And you need to listen with the other ear to the long ancient story that's been being told all along. You need to listen with the other ear to the story told in Genesis. And it's only when you listen to both of these stories at the same time that you can get what the first Christians want you to get about the resurrection. So, in Genesis, we're told that God, the word is, finished. Very important. Genesis 2, verse 1. God finished his work of creation on which day? Does anybody know? No. He's, he finished, it says, on the sixth day, Friday. And then on the seventh day, Saturday, does anybody know what it says God does? He rested. Those two words. Very, very important. Now, all four Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified on what day of the week? The sixth day, Friday, that's right. And in John's gospel, the climactic moment of the crucifixion, right before Jesus, is di Jesus dies, he takes the thing God the Father said in Genesis 2 and says it himself. It is finished. He rips the word right out of the first page of Scripture. It's done. As the Father finished the work of creation on the sixth day, the Son finished the work of redemption on the sixth day. It's parallel. And, and they all want you to get that. They all want you to hear that echo. But it doesn't just stop there. 
on the seventh day of the week, remember in Genesis, on the seventh day, what does God do? Rest. And in the Gospels, on the seventh day, God incarnate rests in the tomb. His work is complete. And then, and then, in Mark chapter 16, verse 2, it says, very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they find it empty. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, whether you believe that or not, I want to make another point. I hope you believe it. I want you to believe it. I believe it. A lot of people in this room do. But whether you believe it or not, let's at least see the meaning of it given by the first Christians. What did the first Christians unanimously, all of them, believe the resurrection of Jesus meant? How did they interpret it? All four Gospels, all the Gospel writers, they all interpret the meaning of Jesus' resurrection through the lens of this business going on with days and time. And what it means is this. That in his resurrection, God's new creation has begun. God's new world. And it is as monumental, as cataclysmic as the first act of creation. And it is as real as the first act of creation. The resurrection of Jesus is not ever told as the happy ending to a sad story. You know, like some movie you go to that's really good, and right at the very end, the bad thing happens, and oh, you're crushed. But no, he gets out of it. She gets out of it. And you clap, and you leave the theater, and you throw half your popcorn away. That's not the way they tell the story. Jesus died on the cross. That's sad. Oh, look, he's risen from the dead. Now we're happy. That's not how they're doing this. Was the crucifixion a sad event? Yes. Was the resurrection a happy event? Absolutely. But that is not the way they tell the story. The way Mark is telling the story of Jesus' resurrection, it is not the happy ending of a fairy tale. What he's doing is he's telling the story of the resurrection as a beginning, as the shocking new beginning. As much of a beginning as the second page of the Bible is a beginning. As much a new day and a new creation as Genesis 2.1. When the angel told these women in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, this is the place where they laid him. He was telling them the story is not over. In fact, it's just starting. The new story the story which is now possible is beginning. There's a story that's just starting, and it's starting because Jesus has been enthroned as the king of the Jews, as sovereign over the whole world, as the king over death itself, as the one who is now going to do strange new things, surprising things. He's going to surprise his closest friends and his most implacable enemies, and a new way of living, a new way of being human has been launched into the world. A way that people thought was impossible. 
And they still think today is impossible. But it's a way of living that has called up millions of people around the world and has transformed lives beyond recognition. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the dawning of the new week. The beginning of a new age in human history. And for the remainder of the message, what I'm going to do is walk through the three mind-bending, imagination-stretching characteristics of the new creation, the new world that are given to us right there in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The first thing we see is that in his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. He destroyed death from within. This is the moment of enlightenment. This is the moment of cosmic significance. Jesus, like a mighty hunter, has captured and he slew the lion. A little earlier, Donna read to us from the prophet Isaiah where he said that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. What covering is cast over all people? Um, People from America, people from Africa, people from Europe. What covering is cast over all of? It says that he will swallow up the veil that is spread over every nation. What is spread over every nation? He will swallow up death forever. Don't we all share that in common? People on the right, people on the left, people in Russia, people in China, people in America. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And in the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn. Firstborn. The Christian hope, you see, is not simply heaven. The Christian hope is that when God completes his work, this work that he began in the resurrection of Christ, God will renew the entire cosmos and we can dwell in the co- dwell here with God enjoying life without death. The Christian hope is not that we leave bodies broken by death, but that bodies broken by death get death taken away from them. That is the Christian hope. And those of us who are in Christ, Augustine, a preacher from the, from the fourth century, he said, where is death? It exists no longer. It did exist, but now death is dead. Death, you see, will die in us. And this is hard to believe. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Because we live in this old world, bounded by death. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, can you imagine? You know, my kids will end up asking, so are we going to be 30? Are we going to be 20? What does it mean? Like, are we going to be in the peak of physical condition like you, Dad? I mean, what do we have? What? I don't know what's goofier, my joke, or you laughed at it. <laughs> it this is, this is, Nate, Nate, can you imagine this? I mean, what does it mean that how can fall be beautiful without decomposition? 
Gabby tells me, Aubrey, how can we have great literature without conflict? Because plot needs conflict. I mean, when you really start trying to imagine, Joe, you're going to be totally out of a job maybe, right? What is this going to be like? It's horrible. I mean, it's horrible for us. We can't even imagine it. Why? Because death is the veil that covers all of us. Because we all are shrouded in this veil. And it's a horrible veil. Death is ruthless. It's an ambush. Suffer the death of someone you know and love, and there is a terrifying silence. The feeling that your heart is in pieces and your mind's a blank. When parents die, they rob from their children the joy of the past. And when children die, their parents experience a future that's robbed. And whichever way we turn, the valley of the shadow of death, it's incredibly dark. Lord Byron put it this way, there is no joy the world can give like that it takes away. But it's not just on a personal level. Death is staring us in the face on a cosmic level. Cosmology, the scientific study of the origin and evolution of the universe. Cosmology shows us with a fairly high degree of confidence that life in our universe is doomed to death. First of all, we've got the sun. The sun might be the thing that kills us all. As we know, the sun shines through the effects of its internal nuclear reactions, turning hydrogen into helium. And in about 5 billion years' time, all the core hydrogen of our sun will be exhausted. And when that happens, our sun will swell up to become a red giant. And when that happens, it will burn up all life on planet Earth. We have enough scientific knowledge about the way stars evolve to make this prediction absolutely reliable. There's no argument about it among the scientists. But there's a chance the sun's not going to get us because we've got these other enemies out there. You see, there's gravity and expansion. Cosmologists have shown us that the long history of the universe is controlled by the competition of expansion and gravity. Expansion, the explosive consequence of the Big Bang. And gravity... Drawing all matter together. And these contrasting forces are so evenly balanced that, that scientists don't know for certain which one is going to get us in the end. If expansion wins out, here's what it'll be like. And this is the possibility currently favored by most cosmologists. If expansion predominates, then cosmic history will continue in a world growing steadily colder and dilute and ultimately everything will decay into low-grade radiation. But we might not freeze to death because there's gravity. If gravity wins, it's going to play out in a different way. If gravity wins, the present expansion of the universe will one day halt. The universe will stop expanding, and it'll reverse. And when it reverses, what began as the Big Bang will end with the Big Crunch, the universe will implode into a cosmic melting pot. Those are the three options. The sun, implosion, or decay. 
the time scales for these are in most of your favors. We're talking tens of billions of years. So some of you will have already moved on. But one or other of them, one or other of them is where the universe is headed. We know from science that if the sun doesn't get us first, the universe will ultimately die. The whimper of a cold decay or the bang of a fiery collapse. That's a fact. Except for the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. That's not just personal death. That's cosmic death. And he will swallow up all of those forces of death. All of those forces of decay. In one of his writings, C.S. Lewis, he was trying to help his friend Malcolm. He was trying to help him to imagine life without death. I mean, how do we even imagine that? How do we even imagine a universe that's not expanding? How do we, what does that even mean? What does it mean that our bodies are not decaying? How can we even think this? And so C.S. Lewis, he was this British professor a devout Christian writing in the middle of the century, 20th century, he wrote, the hills and valleys of the new creation will be to those you now experience. To the, he's comparing what the hills and valleys will be like to the ones we experience now. They will be to the ones you now experience, not as a copy to an original, nor as a substitute to the genuine article, but as the flower to the root. Or the diamond to the coal. And once again, birds will sing out and the waters flow and lights and shadows move across the hills. And the faces of our friends laugh upon us with amazed recognition. The way Mark is telling the story of Jesus' resurrection is a shocking new beginning of life without death. That's what we're celebrating today. Jesus rising from the dead is not a mere reviving of a corpse. This is not Jairus' daughter. It's not a resuscitation. It is God's decisive intervention into time and history so that human existence is radically forever transformed. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And when the new creation is fully here, death will be no more. Not in any of these ways. This is what we mean when we say Christ is risen from the dead. That's why we respond. Hallelujah. I can't believe it. I can't imagine it. Holy cow. Right? That's what's going on. No wonder these three remarkable women rush home scared out of their wits. And they must have passed several people along the way because we're told they didn't say a word to anybody. I mean, how would you explain that? Okay. Everything's different now. No more death. I mean, it takes a bit, right? It takes a moment. What they discovered on the first Easter morning not only blew their minds, it shredded their imagination. That's just the first thing. There's something else. Go back to Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Notice the second thing the angel told the women. Go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just like he told you. Go tell the disciples he wants to see them. 
And the reason this is significant is because the disciples were rascally rabbits. They deserted Jesus in his most difficult moment of need. And Peter, I mean Peter, repeatedly, emphatically, publicly blasphemed Jesus as Jesus was being tortured. Peter, this wayward disciple, after his catastrophic failure, after his ugly arrogance and his prideful boasting and his public falling on his face, even Peter was not beyond redemption. And for some of us, this is just as hard to imagine as the death of death. We find it so hard to believe. I mean, how can you imagine a love that will go all the way? It will last the entire course. But just think about what Jesus is offering Peter. After his terrible night of prideful, fearful, shameful betrayal, here is Jesus, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world including Peter's sin and yours and mine. 2,000 years ago, after a violent death that paid the price for your sins and mine, Jesus was raised from the dead. And in this remarkable event, the God of Israel, who was the creator of the whole world, began the work of new creation. The resurrection is about the remaking of a world. Won't this be lovely? Without death and without shame. Can you imagine your family? Can you imagine yourself? Where neither your body nor your soul rebels against you. And now think. Now think about the ground we've covered here. The death of death and inexhaustible love. That's what the resurrection is about. And perhaps this is why the resurrection is so hard for us to believe. Because we've, we all know that death is irreversible. And we've all experienced the frailty and fickleness of love. And so we find it impossible to believe in God's new creation where death is no more and love goes all the way. But the two go together. There was a great German philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was born um, into a secular Jewish family. He was totally agnostic when it came to matters of faith. At one point, he was the richest person in all of Europe. He, he was born into the elite of the elite in Vienna. Um, this is just a, nothing to do with sermon, but this is fascinating. Wittgenstein wrote, uh, went, got his bachelor's degree at Cambridge, and then he was um, in World War I in the trenches, and he wrote a doctoral dissertation in the trenches, never took any classes or anything, and took it to Cambridge and gave it to them, and they gave him a PhD and made him a professor. He was this brilliant, brilliant man, and he struggled with faith. And he came to faith. And in one of his diary entries, he wrote, 
It is love that believes the resurrection. And what, what he means, and I'm going to steal someone else's really cool explanation of it. What he means, he's saying the faith that believes in the resurrection. In the final analysis, it's the same as the love that opens like a flower to answer Jesus' love with a trembling love of its own. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's to turn toward Jesus in love. So look, what he's saying is, what does it mean for me to say that I love Sloan, that I believe in Sloan, my son? Does it mean I, um, when I say I believe in you, Sloan, do you see what it means? Is It means I've turned toward him in love. To be a Christian is to turn toward Jesus in love. And open yourself to him in response to his love with a trembling, hesitant love of your own. And when you do that, like a flower turning toward the sun, you will find life. What I'm trying to say to you is that if you are struggling with doubts, the Enlightenment has lied to us. And it has tried to put belief at the level of the mind. But who wants a parent to believe in them with their mind and without their heart? No, belief when it comes to people is what what you would call in fancy language an epistemology of love. It's the knowledge of love. It's the logic of love. It's the way love works. 400 years ago, George... George Herbert, that remarkable Welsh-born Anglican priest, in a poem called The Flower, he wrote these three lines. Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? It was gone, quite underground. And that's it. That's the second thing about the shocking new beginning of Easter. First, it's the death of death. And second, it's the unleashing of an inexhaustible love. And third, like Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome were sent to the disciples and to Peter, the third shocking fact of Easter, the meaning of the resurrection, not only the death of death, Not only the unleashing of an inexhaustible love, but also we are commissioned. We are to go and find those whose hearts have been shrunken and shriveled by death. We are to go into those desert places, those places in our cities and in our our world that are shriven up by death and sin and sorrow and disbelief. And we are to do the hard work of going into those places and going to those people and sharing with them the love and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Easter says, Welcome to God's new world. And with that, we're invited to taste the forgiveness for ourselves and then to offer it to the world. And so the third thing about Easter we we have to see is Jesus is commissioning, empowering us to show the world signs of love. 
to show the world life, to reach out with hands in love, to bravely walk with, with people who are wrestling with faith and doubt amid the storm of secularism and the strong winds of postmodernism. We need to go into our city and our neighborhoods and our schools and, our, and work for justice and for truth and for beauty. We need to march right into all the forms and forces of death that plague our city and our world. We need to bring works of healing and new life into our overcrowded jail. We need to dive into the enormously challenging, complicated issue of affordable housing and homelessness here in Harrisonburg. Do you know that a significant factor in homelessness in our city is a lack of affordable housing? Those of you who are starting out in your careers and you're trying to find a house and you can't find a way into the housing market here, you are a thousand steps ahead of a whole group of people for whom Harrisonburg has no housing. We have a housing problem. We have a homeless problem in our city that is fundamentally rooted in our housing. And it's difficult. It is complex. But you know who's going to solve it? Christians who are businessmen and developers, and working on zoning boards, and real estate agents, and a really creative architects, and interior designers who are going to look at our city and say, how can we make this happen? Our job, we have been commissioned to remind those in power, and if any of you are in power, hear this. You will be held accountable by Jesus Christ himself. You are responsible to do justice and to bring wise healing to God's world. We're commissioned to do this. And as we do this, we can know, as Deb works at Spotswood, as Zelda works in a very difficult community in our, in, in our city, as all of us go about these works that we do, here's the deal. Not only have we been commissioned, but as it says in Mark 16, 7, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is going into those places before us. We will not be going on our own. We will be participating in his divine victory march. It's love that believes the resurrection. And it's the resurrection that awakens love. Love for Jesus. Love for one another. And love for this world. Let's pray.